Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. Welcome to the art of our wars on the Tanya Acker Show. Sometimes the positions that we take in certain types of public conflicts all depends on how people frame the issue. Uh, Take my last episode with Jeremy Dice. Jeremy represented coach Joe Kennedy before the Supreme Court uh, after the coach was fired from his public high school job uh, for praying on the football field after football games. The Supreme Court said that his firing violated the Constitution. And for Jeremy and for Coach Kennedy, Uh, and uh, their allies, the the case really touched on important questions of religious freedom. Uh, For my next guest, I surmise, and you will hear, uh, that they would frame the issue differently. Uh, Patrick Elliott was on the other side of the case involving Coach Kennedy. He is senior counsel with the Freedom From Religion Foundation. That side, of course, did not prevail in the case. But for Patrick, I think, as you'll see, uh, the the case what they were fighting for was not to limit religious freedom, but what they were fighting for was something else. And I think for them, it was really a question of uh, compulsion or implied compulsion, but you can hear for yourself. Listen, uh, there are some things we are never going to stop fighting about. And there are some arguments like those involving questions of religious freedom and or how much folks can be compelled to participate in religious activity. Uh, There are issues like that that people are going to continue to fight about forever, I suspect. But what I would like to do is to shed a little more light on some of these conflicts just so that we can fight better, so we can fight smarter, and so that sometimes, at least, uh, when we have to go to battle, we really know what's at issue for everybody. I also think we should fight less often when we can. Here I am with Patrick Elliott. He is senior counsel with the Freedom From Religion Foundation. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the podcast, Patrick Elliott, senior counsel with the Freedom From Religion Foundation. Thank you for being here. Glad to be with you. So uh, your organization, the Freedom From Religion Foundation, filed an amicus brief uh, in the Supreme Court case involving Coach Joe Kennedy. That's right. I had uh, Jeremy Dice, counsel for First Liberty, on in an earlier episode. Talk to us, though, about what your role was in the case. Just as an initial matter, why don't you just tell people why the Freedom From Religion Foundation uh, filed an amicus brief in this case? Right. We've been watching this case since, you know, the district court, since 2015. So we've kind of been there along the way. And our organization looks to keep religion and government separate. And so we hear from uh, students all the time and parents all the time about religion in their public schools, coaches pushing religion on kids, especially football coaches. So this wasn't really a foreign issue to us that this is something that happens. And, And our concern is, hey, you have a person with a position of authority that's coercing other people into religious practice. Prayer is what was going on in this instance. And that's something that other coaches have done for years. There've been a number of cases on it. There've been Supreme Court cases about prayer in schools. Um, So it's something, you know, our organization cares deeply about, and especially on the behalf of people who have uh, no religion or they're part of a minority religion. You know, it tends to be Christian coaches pushing their evangelical beliefs on other people's children. And that's something that we're concerned about, especially from a constitutional perspective. 
Now, in this case, I understand it. And as Jeremy described the facts, uh, <laughs> I work on a court show, so I know there are always going to be two different sides. But in this case, as I understand it, Coach Kennedy's prayers took place after the game. So it wasn't during, uh, you know, any official school activity. And furthermore, that there was no compulsion, uh, that this was simply the coach engaging in what Jeremy described as his duty to God without compelling or requiring any other student participate in that. What's your response? I think it's the second part that's problematic. Um, what happened in this case was for many, many years, the coaches were having prayers in the locker room before and after games. And this coach, Coach Kennedy, for seven years, was having prayers on the field as part of his pep talks after games. So it's a it's an official team event. You know, he's holding up helmets, uh, preaching to the kids, bringing in even opposing players uh, for the prayer practice. And after this case, uh, you know, got started, a former player came forward and said, I felt like I had to participate in the prayer, um, which isn't surprising because, you know, anybody who plays sports really wants to please the coach. Um, you know, the, the boundaries of when the last whistle stops doesn't mean you stop being a part of that team. You may have other team events, uh, you know, post-game huddle to take care of. So I, I disagree with the idea that there was no compulsion involved. At least historically, there definitely was compulsion involved. The question is, is the precise thing that the coach says he wanted to do, was that really a personal and private matter, or was it really something that was meant to be a team event? The conduct for which he was terminated and that resulted in uh, him taking the case to the Supreme Court, that didn't involve giving sermons or giving prayers before the game, as I understood it. I thought that the only activity that was presently, at, or the, I, I understood that the only activity that was at issue when he was fired was going on in the field after the game, taking a knee and praying. That's how he presented it to the Supreme Court, and I think that's how some of the Supreme Court justices interpreted it. In practice, as you know, you know the facts are messier. This was all happening in the fall of 2015, and it seemed like he wanted to continue what he was doing. He was going on news media saying, I want to continue what I was doing, not saying, I'm changing that. I'm now going to do a personal and private thing without involving other uh, you know, without involving any other players. Uh, in fact, in the Court of Appeals in this case, one of the judges, uh, actually it was a George W. Bush appointee, said that uh, Kennedy's attorneys were spinning, quote, a deceitful narrative about what was going on. So I do think you're right about, you know, there being a different version of facts, which, which is typical in a case, but it's a little odd that the judges have a different version of facts. That's not as typical. Let's just assume for the sake of argument that that is the only conduct that's at issue. Taking a knee, praying after games. Uh, I think it's your position that even if that is true, that that is still, compul that's still compelling some, or, or I think it's your position that even if that's true, some students still felt compelled to participate. Am I right about that? Well, we don't really know what this new version of prayer would look like. You know, when this all happened, the school district was trying to accommodate the coach and saying, hey, you can do your prayer after the game. How about you do it on the sideline or in the press box or inside the school building? He didn't want that. He wanted the 50-yard line on the field. Um, so I do think if he's going to you know, come back and continue to do a prayer on the 50-yard line, 
and students and players join him, that can relate uh, back to compulsion. You know, it may become a team event again, and players are going to want to join their coach. Um, if it's Kennedy by himself, it's not so much a problem, but he's made it a thing. You know, he put out in the fall of 2015, he put out to the press, I'm going to do this big prayer event after he was suspended. And people came from the stands and rushed the field, even knocking over some students to hold a big prayer event on the field. Certainly that type of event is something he can't do if he's going to continue as a coach. So I think it really depends on uh, how this would play out in the future. And in the past, we may disagree about what actually had happened there. Jeremy Dice said that there was another coach who on the sidelines engaged in a Buddhist chant or a Buddhist meditation uh, to which Coach Kennedy had no objection. And I, I think the implied point was that, that there was some disparate treatment of Coach Kennedy because uh, he was Christian. Were there other coaches of other faiths who were engaging in some sort of demonstrable religious expression that you're aware of? I'm not aware of that. And I don't think they were doing it in the same sense that Kennedy was, which was had a history of including others, including student players in that activity. Um, you know, so that's really what it comes down to is how this is all conducted. If it's conducted on the 50 yard line immediately after the game ends with other people, that's different than somebody saying, I need to excuse myself and, and go and pray. And I think the school district was trying to recognize that and trying to accommodate him. And I think the organization representing him didn't want that to happen. I think they wanted to make this a bigger case and get this case to the Supreme Court, which is what they did. As Jeremy Dice, again, uh, who was on the other side of this issue as you, uh, described the situation or described the court's opinion and the school district's conduct, uh, what he said was that the school district targeted any sort of demonstrable religious expression, so that if a teacher wore a yarmulke, that would be prohibited. Under that analysis, I suggested that if a teacher crossed themselves, that would have been prohibited. Would those sorts of demonstrable religious expressions be something that you would find objectionable in a public school? In, in nearly all instances, no. You know, people have a right, and there's actually been challenges on that. You can wear, you know, a cross or a crucifix and wear a yarmulke. This goes well beyond that in into the area of a person with authority trying to get other people to engage in religious worship conduct. So if somebody else was doing that, that would be a problem. But certainly this district, I think, went above and beyond to try to accommodate the coach and to try to smooth things out. He didn't see it that way. You know, he wanted to make this a fight that would go to the Supreme Court and, and he got what he wanted. People on all sides do, right? I mean, somebody wants to test an argument or push the envelope and they tee up a case and then they get it to the court. That's that's certainly not unusual. What does the decision mean? I asked Jeremy to give a description to interpret it for us. What's your view of the impact of the Supreme Court decision in Coach Kennedy's case? I, I guess I would split it into kind of two things. For the actual scenario that happened here, it doesn't have a lot of impact because the majority of the court is saying this was a private, personal, and quiet prayer. Um, if that's the type of thing that would be permitted in other places, that's probably not going to be a problem. What would be a problem is if other coaches are trying to you know, broadcast prayers, prayers in the locker room, teachers in the classroom, that type of conduct would be problematic. So its actual impact as to similar situations is probably minimal. But its overall impact as to the law, I think, is a little bit untested. You know, the court said it was you know, no longer relying on this bedrock test that we've been using since the 1970s called the Lemon Test. So that would say, you know, what type of things can the government do that are, would violate the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment? You know, 
the state is putting its, its, its um, stamp of approval on religion. It's really seems to be dismissing that and saying, we're now going to go to this world of historical practices and understandings, which I think the dissent says, we don't know what that means. So I think we're in a little bit of uncharted territory to see where uh, courts will treat that. To be sure, though, the decision doesn't mean what some have suggested. I mean, it's not, it doesn't open the door uh, to teachers proselytizing in the classroom or during the school day. I'm right about that, right? I agree. Yep, I agree with that. Do you think, Patrick, that the separation between church and state for which you advocate, uh, do you think it's in jeopardy? I'm not going to argue with you about whether or not it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing. I think you got to watch The Handmaid's Tale and we'll all know why it's a good thing. Um, And uh, I'm only being half facetious about that. Do you think that that principle is in jeopardy? Absolutely. You know, there are, uh, like your your prior guest, Jeremy Dice, groups out there that are well-funded and are strategically seeking to to chip away at the wall of the separation between church and state, which I think has served this country great, you know, for the last, uh, you know, at least since the 1960s in terms of the interaction with how it relates to state governments and our schools. Um, I would say to them, you know, be careful what you wish for, because you can have further interactions between religion and government, and people may not like where that goes. You know, that may uh, be kind of a progressive Christianity that some conservative Christians might not like. Um, And it certainly may um, impact a lot of areas of people's lives, like, you know, you kind of, I think, hint at decisions about health care, decisions about abortion. You know, we don't want a government that's ruling based on religious principles to tell us how to um, live our lives. Um, That's what some people are trying to do. And I think our Supreme Court is very willingly going down that road. And I say that in part because of this case. This was a case, the Supreme Court gets more than 5,000 petitions per year. And last year it only took, I think, 66 cases. This was one of the cases that the US Supreme Court thought was so important to take. So I think that should tell you something about what the risks are with um, separation of state and church being under attack. Let me just push back on something for a moment because assuming, and again, I I said, I I do believe in the separation of church and state. Do you think that for those of us who believe in and support that principle, that there are those who can sometimes just take it a little far? I mean, look, uh, you can believe in a secular government, but doesn't it sometimes seem like people are just, can be a little bit offended by any mention of religion that isn't theirs or, you know, I mean, is there some hypersensitivity on the secularist side? I don't think so today. I mean, I think over the years, there maybe have been court challenges that a lot of people would say, you know, come on, why are we, why are you suing over this or fighting over that? I think today there's a very big risk in in part because people who are in the minority religion or, you know, who are atheists, see it and feel it when their government, particularly local governments, I think that's a lot of time where we're seeing violations. They're putting the weight of their government behind their religion and they want other people, they want to abuse that power to get other people to believe it or take some practice that, uh, like prayer, um, that they believe in, but that other people don't. So I think for the most part, these are genuine uh, affronts to people's constitutional rights. I think we're a much better society if we say, hey, there are things that the government's just not going to do and that might be religion. We think, I think it's a bad idea for the government to get involved in religion and vice versa. That's what's in our First Amendment. Um, so the more that that happens, 
it's a problem. I think certainly some people may scoff at, oh, that's actually not that big of a deal. Um, but certainly there are some things like a big deal. Like I think it's a big deal for coaches to push prayer on their students. Um, for those students, it's a problem. I have clients that are in public schools that had a religious revival during their, their school day and they were forced to attend. I mean, that's a big deal. One of those students was Jewish. So I think it's a problem that, that these violations are allowed to be out there. And I think it is something we should all be fighting for to protect. Compulsion strikes me as really the key thing, right? Because you can't really be offended if there's a group of Christian students in a public school who want to meet during lunch and have a Bible study, right? I mean, is that, is that if it's a student-led religious activity during school hours, uh, that's constitutionally permissible, is it? Or am I outdated? Am yeah, I missing that's cases? Per, no, you're, you're, <laughs> you're right on. I mean, that's the thing. That's the difference between... What we do is we don't have a problem with students organizing their own religious activity. What happens in practice is it's a lot of times teachers or outside adults doing that. But if it's genuinely student-run, student-initiated, that's permissible activity. What's next for you, Patrick, and for the um, Freedom From Religion Foundation in your fight to preserve the separation of church and state? Um, are there big cases you're working on? Are there some uh, policy adjustments you're, you're advocating? What's next for you in this fight? Yeah, I think, you know, we're, we're outgunned on this and we're going to continue to fight for the separation of, of state and church. Uh, we have cases that are pending and some of those, I just want to win them. I don't want them to go up to the Supreme Court or a state Supreme Court. Um, some of those are important. Like I mentioned, a religious revival held during a school day that required students to attend, including non-religious students and Jewish students. Uh, we have a case in South Carolina where the legislature just said, here, we're going to give $1.5 million to a Christian organization that does uh, Bible study. And that's a case that we've taken. So we have these fights that I think are important. And, and we're uh, right now facing an uphill battle given how our courts are treating some of these cases. The religious revival case, uh, tell me a little more about that. This was in a public school in what state? This is in uh, Huntington, West Virginia at Huntington High School. And this happened in February of this year. A pastor came in and held a religious revival for the students. Some classes were required to attend. Other students uh, chose to attend. And so we're representing a number of families uh, challenging that and trying to pre prevent that from happening again. So this school made some students show up and listen to a pastor give a revival sermon in a, in, in, during, the, during the course of the school day? At least two of the classrooms at least two teachers took their entire classrooms to the revival. Other students uh, left their classrooms to, to go to this voluntarily. You are representing a Jewish student or a Jewish family uh, that had to go listen to this sermon? Yes, one of our plaintiffs is a, a, a Jewish student. We have other plaintiffs who are either non-religious and even some who, had, who would identify as Christian, but we're very much an affront to their Christianity because of what this church is. This is a very fundamentalist pastor who, it was a hard sell that day saying, you need to turn your lives over to Jesus or you'll face eternal torment. So he's trying to really do a salvation that day at school, at a public school during you know, a normal day. Um, so th that's one of the types of cases that we're taking. It's not, you know, we have a number of cases that are pending, but I think uh, just for your listeners' benefit, this type of stuff is going on today. This is not all a thing where schools are always respecting people's constitutional rights or local government. Um, this type of thing is happening, and that's one of our cases. Putting aside the constitutional argument, if you can, I'm just thinking about this particular student. 
What was it like for them sitting in and listening to the revival? Because some might say, and again, uh, I want to hear from you. I'm not assuming anything. People hear things that they disagree with all the time, right? I can hear things. People can say things. Somebody might try to sell me an idea, and I'm just not into it. Like, I'm not buying it. So what's the harm to someone in hearing something that may violate their beliefs, may violate their personal beliefs, their religious beliefs? You know, they're free to disagree. What's the damage? Yeah, I think for adults, maybe you're making a valid point about, you know, sometimes you're hearing things you may not like, and maybe you have an opportunity to, to leave or absent yourself. In the public school context, you don't have the opportunity usually to just say, I'm out of school today. And you're more susceptible, again, to those coercive pressures, the idea that, this adult or my school or my teachers are putting their weight behind a particular belief. And I'm the wrong person. I don't belong here. They're all evangelical Christians, especially in a, a fundamentalist variety. I'm not like that. Um, that's a thing we don't want our public schools. Our public schools have historically, you know, at least in more recent years, are supposed to be accepting of all students. And it should be a place that people shouldn't feel like they're an outsider, that they don't belong. And I think that's what happens when you have the school, you know, really allowing that type of stuff to happen. Or coaches like Kennedy going beyond the bounds, pushing religion on their kids. You're going to have students who say, maybe I'm not going to play sports. Maybe I don't feel like I'm a part of this team because I'm not the right religion. And we don't really want that to happen, right? We want kids to get an education, to all feel welcome, and to still have their own beliefs, whether religious or not. Um, and to express those, but then not to have the school interfere with that. Yeah, I think it's not so much about exclusion, but it, it really is a question of compulsion. And I think even to your point, when you're talking about young people, you're talking about not just compulsion, but compulsion in an environment that, you know, I mean, there are all sorts of rewards associated with being a good student. The teacher going to write you a recommendation to go into college or people, you know, are you going to get a good grade in the class? There, there are different ways of compelling behavior. How do you think that we can do a better job as a civil society of saying, look, these folks over here are going to believe this. These folks over here are going to believe that or nothing at all. And at some point, you're going to have to go to work. You are going to hear something, see something that you don't like. Someone's going to believe something. Someone may have a you know, Bible open on a desk to a verse that uh, someone else might find offensive. How can we do a better job managing all this without just evolving into regular litigation or civil war? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that's a deep question that I may not even have the answer to. I think the people who are, especially those non-religious Americans like myself and others, are used to it. Like, we live in a society where we're not in the majority. We tolerate a lot. We're happy, you know, happy to say hey, Merry Christmas to you or Happy Holidays, whatever it is. It's the other side that there's a lot of resistance. The resistance that, oh, how dare you not believe what I believe. Um, so I think it goes both ways, that I think people need to have an understanding and, and the issue that we're usually focused on is that abuse of governmental power. Are you using your governmental office to advance your religion? Or am I trying to use my position to convert somebody else's children to my belief? Of course, an atheist teacher couldn't tell students, you guys are all wrong, you're believing the Bible is wrong. That Everybody would go up in arms and there'd be a mob at the next school board meeting. Yes, there would. So, so I, think, <laughs> I think we need a little bit of, of understanding from those who are in the majority saying, hey, I kind of understand what it would be like to be on the other side. And maybe I should not use my position in this way. Um, so I, I don't know that that's actually going to work, but I'm hoping at least the Civil War idea is, is not going to happen. I just hope uh, you know, people would respect state church separation, I think would carry over in a number of other areas uh, in terms of tolerance. 
You described yourself as a non-religious person. Do you have religious people close to you in your life? Absolutely. I think a lot of atheists are like this too. You know, I, I grew up Catholic. They probably count me among their members because I was confirmed. But as many people do, that changes over time. People, um, you know, either become more religious or less religious. And so um, having those family members and, and even other people who are close to you who are still are, you know, it helps to have no one atheist because I think they're more cool with state church separation now. They understand it. It's like, oh, I like this person. If they know somebody who's an atheist or somebody who's non-religious and they're a good person, I think it does bring a little more understanding. And this obviously has happened um, to draw a connection, you know, to the LGBTQ community. I think that was a very effective strategy for people. People knowing somebody uh, who was gay or lesbian was extremely helpful for understanding and changing the civil rights of those of those people. So I hope people like me are just, you know, your neighbors, we're your friends, we're your teachers, but we're usually not very showy about it. Um, so if somebody asks me, certainly I'll talk about it, but I'm not gonna be there at the 50 yard line telling people not to believe in God. I'm not going to be doing that. I just wanna be, I just want that same respect, you know, to my kids if they were on that football team. Patrick Elliott, I appreciate you so much coming on the show and uh, sharing your perspective, uh, not just on Coach Kennedy's case, but also just on this issue more broadly. Uh, this is a conflict about which we have always fought in this country. Uh, we probably will not stop anytime soon. And uh, thank you for your important voice. Thank you for being here. Thank you. That was Patrick Elliott from the Freedom From Religion Foundation with another perspective on uh, Coach Joe Kennedy's fight before the Supreme Court. Listen, my friends, we are not always gonna get along and for some of us, we'll never get along with one another. But what we can do is know more about our conflicts, know why we're in it, and we can fight smarter, we can fight better, and I do think we can fight less often. So here's to that. Thanks for being here and I'll see you next time.